Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Sherry Hoyt, and I'm your host for today. Joining me today is Melissa Muldoon, author of Waking Isabella, an enchanting story set in Italy full of love, intrigue, mystery, traditions, and art culture. Before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Melissa. Melissa Muldoon is an artist, graphic designer, and award-winning author of the Studentessa Mata website, a dual-language blog where she promotes the Italian language and culture. Through the Mato website, she organizes small group language immersion programs in Italy twice a year in collaboration with Italian schools as well as private Italian language homestay vacations with teachers all over Italy. Waking Isabella follows Melissa's debut novel, Dreaming Sofia, published in 2016. In this new book set in Arezzo, Italy, readers are taken on another art history adventure. Waking Isabella weaves together several love stories as well as a few mysteries as Nora the protagonist begins to resolve the puzzle of a painting which has been missing for decades of Isabella de' Medici, the Renaissance princess who was murdered by her husband. For more information about Melissa Muldoon and her books, visit her website at melissamuldoon.com. Well, hi, Melissa. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here and chatting with you. Yeah. To begin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm Melissa Muldoon. I am an artist, an author, and a student of the Italian language. I began my career as an illustrator and graphic designer, but several years ago, my quest to learn the Italian language prompted me to start writing a dual language blog in Italian and English. And since then, my career has taken me in a whole new direction. I'm still an artist and an illustrator, but now because of my Italian language blog, I'm also the author of two novels set in Italy, as well as a creator of YouTube videos and podcasts in Italian. And twice a year, I lead small group language immersion programs in Italy. Nice. What is Waking Isabella about? Well, Waking Isabella is a story set in Arezzo, Italy, against the backdrop of the city's antique fair and jousting festival. It's about uncovering hidden beauty that, over time, has either been lost, erased, or suppressed. It weaves together several love stories, as well as a few mysteries, and Nora, the story's contemporary protagonist, is an assistant researcher, and she's the catalyst for resolving a puzzle of a painting that goes missing during World War II of Isabella de' Medici. And Isabella was a Renaissance princess who was murdered by her husband. Mm, such a great story. I've been looking forward to reading it ever since I finished Dreaming Sophia, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? Well, Waking Isabella follows my first novel, as you mentioned, Dreaming Sophia, and I like to invent stories that are set in the present, but also take readers back in time to another era. And being an art historian and Italian student, it's also my goal to introduce art history themes, like paintings and artists to readers, as well as a little bit of the Italian language and culture. And hopefully it will entice readers to want to learn more about Italy and even want to study the language and travel there. And my first book was set in Florence, but after having spent a lot of time recently in Arezzo, leading my language immersion programs, the town has become really special to me. So, of course, it seemed a perfect setting for my next book. But specifically, the idea of Waking Isabella came to me last year when I was in Arezzo during a visit to the house of Giorgio Vasario. He's a 15th century artist, and he was Mm -hmm. born there. And the Arantini, that's what they call the people who live in Arezzo, are really proud of this. And But anyway, as I was walking through Vasari's house, I came upon a painting of a beautiful woman. And I was mesmerized by the portrait. And as I got closer and I read the label and I discovered it was a portrait of Isabella de' Medici, I was intrigued and I wanted to learn more, especially since 
Isabella is the daughter of Eleonora de' Medici, a character in my first book. Mm -hmm. So when I got back home and I started doing research on Isabella, and I discovered all kinds of interesting things about her life and how she was a very intelligent and gifted woman, and she was brought up by the Grand Duke Cosimo I, her father, to be quite independent. But as I was doing my research, I discovered her waywardness was contributed to a plot to having her killed in a Medici hunting lodge outside of Florence. It was a plot by her brother and her husband. And after Isabella's father died, she had no one to protect her. And they tried to control her and cut her off her inheritance. And she died horribly hung in her bedroom. And it's said now that her ghost remains caught in the villa. And people to this day say they have seen her and they call her La Dama Bianca, which means the white lady. So, of course, my imagination was immediately piqued, and the idea for Waking Isabella came to life soon after that. Yeah, that was uh, really quite dramatic. Uh, The beginning (laughs) of the story opens up with the murder of the princess. And uh, Why did you set the story in Arezzo? What makes this town so special? Uh, There are many things that make Arezzo special. It's a small hill town located along the train line. It's about halfway between Florence and Rome, and Mm -hmm. it's known for its unique jousting festival that takes place in the Piazza Grande twice a year. Uh, Everyone dresses up in medieval costumes. There are flag throwers, there's music and drummers. It's a very colorful event. And, of course, the first Sunday of every month, the city holds an antique fair, and vendors come from all over to sell jewelry and furniture and china. It was started back in the 1960s by a collector who lived in Arezzo, and it's just become so popular, and it's just so much fun to wander through and find all the treasures in the market. The town is also famous for artwork, the famous cycle of San Francesco in the Church of San Francesco by Piero della Francesca. It's, as I mentioned before, the birthplace of Vasari, and it was also the site for Roberto Benini's film, La Vita e Bella, Life is mm-hmm. Beautiful, that won the Academy Award. So it's got lots of interesting things going on in Arezzo. Yeah, and it sounds like an amazing place to research a novel. How did you do your research? Well, living in Arezzo for an extended amount of time, I was able to get to know the town pretty well, as well as a lot of people who live there. As soon as I stepped off the train, it just felt like home to me, and I was... <laughs> able to immerse in the town's folklore. I was very curious. I wanted to learn more about its festivals, the jousting festival, as I mentioned earlier, visit its churches and see the frescoes that uh, Piero della Francesca had created, and, you know, just get to know the bars and the restaurants and explore the town extensively. It was great because I actually use actual street names in my book. So Mm -hmm. as you're walking down the street, I'll mention like where the antique store is located. It's an actual (laughs) place. So I had fun envisioning where my characters were wandering around. And actually, last time I was there, I was halfway through my book. And I felt like I was going to turn the corner and see one of my characters coming at me. Yeah. (laughs) It just felt (laughs) like I knew it so well. And during my time there, I was able to interview several key people. The owner of a bookstore, his name is John Piero, and he works at the Viaggiatore Imaginario. And he was so lovely. I went into his shop to inquire about Arezzo's history during the war. I wanted to find images of what the town looked like during the 1940s, before and after the bombings. The town was hit pretty heavily by Germans and allies alike. It was caught right in the middle. It's an important train hub between Florence and Rome. And this bookstore owner, of course, I went and I was talking in Italian, and he he loosened up, and he became quite interested in my project and invited me to come back the next day. 
and he said he had some materials at home he thought I would find useful. So I returned, and he produced these volumes, like magazines. Uh, It was a book filled with reproduced clippings of newspaper articles and photos. And he even handed me a DVD with historic film clips. He said he wasn't even sure it would play, but I got it to work, and it shows actual footage of Arezzo and the Allied tanks that rolled into the city when they were trying to liberate it. But you see these amazing images of the toppled buildings and the rubble from the bombings. And in addition to that, I spoke with several jousters about the jousting game and how they prepare for the event throughout the year. One man is a current jouster for the Santo Spirito team, and another was an ex-jouster for Porta Crucifero. And I, of course, I'd read up a lot on the joust, and I participated in the event several times now, going to the celebratory dinner the night before the games and visiting the team's museums to see the costumes and the lances they've won. And it's just fascinating to me that this event that began in the Middle Ages is still celebrated still today in this modern age. But the most fascinating thing I did, I made a trip to Choreto Guidi, the hunting lodge where Isabella de' Medici was murdered. Mm, so that's the beginning of your story, actually. Mm. I was wondering what it was like to visit the actual villa itself. Did you see Isabella's ghost? <laughs> what was that like? Well, I can't say I actually met Isabella's ghost, but Chiretto Guidi was an amazing place. I had been writing my story for several months. Of course, I wanted to visit the place that figures so prominently at the beginning of my story. Mm -hmm. I was finishing up my June language program last year, and my husband joined me in Florence. So we rented a car and drove about an hour west to Chiretto Guidi to this hunting lodge. Cosimo de' Medici, Isabella's father, built many hunting lodges all over Tuscany, and the the family went there to shoot local game and entertain their guests. And at this time, it was just in the middle of nowhere. It was in the middle of a forest, and today a little town has grown up around it. But it's not an easy place to reach for tourists. There isn't a train or a bus, so it's a little deserted. And now it's a museum for hunting artifacts from the Renaissance. But it was fascinating to wander through the villa and see the portraits of the Medici family and imagine my story. And like the book, I had a very attentive guard who followed me around. And we had a delightful conversation, again, in Italian, all about Isabella. Nice. (laughs) Standing in her bedroom, it was really an amazing experience. I looked up, and you can still see the hole where the cord was inserted from the room above from which she was hung. Um. I actually have a picture of myself standing in the room above with my feet, and you can see the little hole in the floor. Really? Oh, my gosh. I can't say I met Isabella's ghost, but I did (laughs) feel a connection with the Medici princess, and I knew I wanted to help tell her story, not just concentrate on the ghost story. So there's a little bit of the fantasma and the ghost at the beginning, but I wanted people really to know what a strong, intelligent woman she was and to tell her story and help bring her to life. Yeah, I feel like you really did that. I mean, I felt her her presence, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, she seemed, like you, you mentioned earlier, she did seem to be a woman ahead of her time because she certainly didn't lead the typical lifestyle of a woman exactly. in those days. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. But the story isn't just about Isabella. It, it begins in a contemporary setting. So tell us a little bit about the protagonist, Nora. Yeah, the story's main protagonist, as you said, is Nora. She's a woman at a crossroads in her life when the story begins. She's an American living in California, and she has just gone through a divorce. She's pondering her choices. Life has uh, disappointed her in several ways, and she's wondering about the lives she might have had if she had made different choices. Did she settle for too little? Did she give up on her dreams? She has these regrets. So at the beginning of the book, she starts out alone, depressed, sitting on a beach, 
And through the course of the book, we follow her journey to really reinvent herself, rediscover love, and take a chance on herself. And she dares to break with the past and follow her heart to Italy. Another strong, inspirational female character. Well, she kind of grows into her her strengths, doesn't she? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Now, you explore several themes in your book, and finding and discovering beauty is an important part of the book, too. So I was curious to know, what is your concept of beauty? You know, that's a, it's a difficult question to define what <laughs> beauty means, and it's different, I believe, for each one of us. Mm-hmm. But over the course of time, it seems that there has always been this dominant authority that has tried to dictate standards of beauty. Today, for mm-hmm. example, in fashion magazines, they tell us how a woman should look and dress. Back in the 15th century, even then, all the way to the 20th century, for artists, there have been art academies and art authorities determining standards of beauty and dictating how an artist should paint. And this occurred also during the 1930s and the 1940s, during the rise of fascism. Uh, Once again, standards of beauty were determined by the ruling regime. Hitler decided that modern art, for example, work by Picasso and other avant-garde artists, even Van Gogh. He tried to suppress various trends in modern art, things like expressionism, cubism, surrealism, things that we just take for granted these days. Even jazz music was prohibited and other experimental art forms. He called it deviant art. If a painting didn't meet his standards, it was banned, burned, or confiscated, and this forced artists to go underground. So this becomes a theme in my book as well. Who has the authority to determine for another person what beauty means? But back to your original question, for me personally, I think beauty exists in many things. It can be found in imperfect things. Beauties all around us, the way that the light filters through the trees or even even a song we hear or the sensation we have feeling or handling a smooth stone. Sometimes we just have to slow down and take the time and appreciate these things. And in this way, beauty is awakened. Yeah, absolutely. And spoken like a true artist, I might say. (laughs) (laughs) Finding beauty in everything. I actually, actually, when I was writing the book, I interviewed several people. I I wanted to find out what beauty meant to them and did this little survey. So I was always asking for about six months, asking people what their their take on beauty was. So it's interesting to to put together these responses and kind of... uh, That part of the book went on for several pages, and my editor was like, well, we have to tone this down. It's very interesting. It's a very philosophical discussion, but you might want to tone that down a little bit. But Nora and um, Luca, the characters, they have a little conversation in the church, and I like that scene. Yeah. You touched a little bit of Hitler's obsession with art during the war, and, and I found that really interesting. Can you give us a little more background behind that? Yeah, if you can believe this. Hitler wanted to be an artist. He was rejected by the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, and I believe this was back in 1907. He applied twice and was declined both times, so that oh didn't gosh. fit very well with him. Yeah. And <laughs> later when he wrote, you know, who, what would have happened if he had been accepted, maybe? <laughs> you know, the course of history. But later oh, yeah. when he rose to power, it became this obsession of his to create the largest art collection in the world in Berlin, And to this end, he stole art from all over Europe. He confiscated it from households, uh, Jewish households, churches, museums. And people began at that point to hide paintings so he couldn't get his hands on some of the important Mm -hmm. cultural pieces that they wanted to keep in their countries. And this happened most notably in Paris. Before the Nazis marched into Paris after it fell, there was this massive effort to create up high paintings and sculptures Mm -hmm. that had been housed in the Louvre to keep them out of his hands. 
And there was also this broad partisan movement in Italy, other countries as well, to secure important pieces. And the paintings were hidden in basements and cantinas and you know, wine cellars and in barns. And to this day, many paintings are still lost. Some were destroyed during the bombings and others were just hidden. And after the war, there was this group of men called Monument Men, and mm-hmm. they worked to restore work to the rightful owners. But still today, there's a lot of art that's still lost, and yet these amazing discoveries are still being made. Some pieces of important artwork will come to light, and they're found in the most unlikely places, and these amazing discoveries are still being made. So that yeah. plays a little bit in my story as well, finding yeah. the missing painting that was lost during the war. Yeah, that's amazing. And well, amazing to me how one man can do so much damage. Exactly. How yeah. gives one man the authority to dictate to, you know, just ruin so many lives and Yeah, that, that's another story, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do touch on that. Yeah. Yeah. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life, experience, as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Melissa Muldoon, author of Waking Isabella. You can learn more about Melissa and her books by visiting her website at melissamuldoon.com. Well, so far in Waking Isabella, we, we've talked about murder and culture and art and history and world war, and there are also there are a lot of people that die. <laughs> yeah. I know. But, but there are also but, several love stories in this novel. There are love and, stories, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you elaborate on, on those a bit? Well, let's see. Yeah, I talk about three strong women in the book, and so there are three interesting love stories that are all tied together. We start out with the love story between Isabella and Troiolo in the 15th century. Isabella was married to Paolo Giordano, her husband, but she also had a love affair with her husband's cousin for years and even had children by him. And I really enjoy writing Isabella's character. She's so lively and witty, and the love story between Isabella and Troiolo is full of sexual innuendo and a lot of banter, and very it's kind of risque, so that was fun to write. (laughs) There's also the love story of Margarita and Federico. Federico is the artist who arrives in Arezzo after Paris falls, and that story takes place in the 1940s. And that was another fun love story to write. It's tragic and yet beautiful at the same time, and it's set against the war years. And, yeah. And I know what happens, and I'm the one that wrote it, but every time I get to that part in the book, I kind of tear up a little bit oh, God. when I read her story. <laughs> and, of course, there's the love story of Nora and Gianluca Donati that takes place in the present day. They're two people. They've been hurt by love in the past, but they're discovering how to take chances and love again. Mm-hmm. So there is also their love story, but also I want to focus, like my first book, Dreaming Sophia, the love story that Nora has with Italy. 
how she mm-hmm. reconnects the place that brings her to life and brings to life her creativity and inspires her. In this story, beauty is a metaphor for finding love and reawakening the things buried deep within us, whether it is love for, say, another person or that thing that brings us the greatest joy in life. Yeah. What I really enjoyed was getting to read about the love stories in three different eras. That was really mm-hmm. interesting, the way you combined it into one story. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little more about Gianluca, the male protagonist in Waking Isabella. Yeah, Gianluca, or that's his full name, but he's also called Luca. So Gianluca or Luca is an ex-jouster and an antiquarian. And that can only happen, I believe, in Italy to <laughs> find that kind of combination. <laughs> but he runs the family business in Arezzo that was started by his grandfather, Bernardo, and his grandmother is Margarita. And he has this eye for acquiring precious antiques, but lately the business has been having a few problems. He mm-hmm. is this ex-jouster. He's an excellent horseman, a cavaliere, a giostratore, and during his early 20s, he won the joust several years in a row for his neighborhood, Santo Spirito. So he's well-known and has the reputation around town as being a local hero. Hmm. And what exactly does it mean to be a jouster? And can you also tell us more about the joust itself? In Italian, the jousting event is called La Giostra, and it occurs twice a year in June and September. The festival dates back to the Middle Ages uh, when the Argentini, the men from Arezzo, prepared to defend the town from the Muslim invaders that made it all the way up the Italian peninsula as far as Arezzo, in the middle of Tuscany. Hmm. Originally, the joust was a military training exercise. Men ran their horses straight at a target called a burrato. This is an oversized mannequin made of wood that was created in fashion to look like the king of the Indies who represented their enemy. And during the Renaissance, though, however, it lost its militaristic significance and became instead more of a competitive sports event. Mm -hmm. There was uh, food and dance and, of course, the jousting games in which four of the neighborhoods in Arezzo participate. And the neighborhoods, or quartieri, as they're called, represent the four medieval gates of the city. And there's Porta Santo Spirito, Porta Sant'Andrea, Porta Crucifra, and Porta Foro. And my characters in my book are from these different neighborhoods, so there's a little bit of competition and rivalry going on that is comes yeah. out in the book. But for each of the neighborhoods, there are two jousters who compete, and each neighborhood has its own colorful flags and colors. And you can always tell who is a fan of which team, even today, by the colors the people are wearing. And let's see, the week before the joust, there is just a lot of pomp and circumstance. The spectator stands are set up in the Piazza Grande and where the event takes place. And the piazza is filled with packed sand. And it, a path called a litza is made for the horses to run up. And at the end, it's the burrato dummy with its target. And the jousters, they all dress up in their costumes. And they try to hit the target directly in the middle. And they're trying to hit this target that is like the size of a quarter. It's hard to (laughs) comprehend that they can handle a horse and handle this big lance and try to do that. And during the week prior to the event, you can see them practicing in the piazza, and they're getting their horses used to running up and down the, the path. And you hear the drums and the music, and it just makes your heart race. It's just really exciting. And on the day of the event, there's a big procession, and people dress up in colorful costumes. Men are in leggings and doublets, and women are in long gowns and elaborate headdresses. And you can see the spandiatori. They are the flag throwers tossing their banners into the air. 
and they mm. do all kinds of acrobatic maneuvers. And it's really, it's, it's just a fascinating event, and you can sense the jousting fever as yeah. everyone's rooting for their neighborhood team. It sounds like there's a lot at stake, like uh, neighborhood bragging rights for the most yeah, part, I exactly, guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So how is the joust won, and is there a prize? Yeah, of course. The jousters take turns running up, as I said, this leads, and they're trying to strike the target. And mm -hmm. there's a scorecard, and they accrue points based on their accuracy. So if they miss the quarter size right in the middle, there are different points around the edges. Mm -hmm. And you can lose points by riding off the track, for instance, or if you drop your lance. But if you break your lance trying to strike the target, you actually double your points. So at some point, you know, if oh. your, your team is behind – they try to that tactic so that they can have an advantage by breaking it. But that's very difficult to do. It's like imagine like trying to break a baseball bat. It's like this big, heavy wooden lance. But Yeah. And there's a panel of judges who then analyze each of the scores. And when they do determine at the end and they announce the winner, the town goes crazy. The whole piazza fills with the fans from that neighborhood, and it just swells into the piazza. And in mass, they go up to the top of the hill to Arezzo's Cathedral, and that's where the jousters, the winning jousters, are presented, the Lancha di Oro, the Golden Lance. And this is a specially carved. It's not used in the competition itself because it's it's designed by an artist. Mm -hmm. And it's carved with a special theme. Each joust has its own theme. And then the neighborhood team puts it into its museum, and it's there. It's on display. Nice, nice. So getting back to your books and your writing, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Do you outline your books ahead of time, or are you more of a uh, by-the-seat-of-your-pants type writer? Uh, well, I'm a little of both. I begin <laughs> with, with a lengthy outline and a pretty clear idea of how my story will start and end and what happens in the middle. And after thoroughly researching my topic and story, I begin to flush out the details and after a while, then I just kind of dive in and start writing. And once I'm off and running, I can write for several hours every day and sometimes mm -hmm. well into the night. I'm a night owl. I'm known to stay up till 3 in the morning. <laughs> and when the first draft is done, I begin the revision process and, of course, the redrafting and filling in more details and more layers. It's like a painting for me. I'm an artist, mm -hmm. so I create a rough sketch and then keep going back over the story, adding more layers and colors and refining the dialogues and trying to get that authentic voice and how the characters would sound and talk. And But sometimes the best ideas of the story, it just takes off when I sit down to write with only just a general idea of what's going to happen. That's the most fun. It's when I feel like the characters are grabbing hold of my pen or my keyboard in this instance because I don't write by hand. I write everything on the computer. Mm -hmm. And that's a great way to revise, I feel. But it's, it's like my characters are starting to take control of the story, and they dictate to me what's going to happen. For instance, in Margarita's story in Waking Isabella, I just sat down like at 8 o'clock in the morning, and by noon I had her whole story flushed out. And, wow. and that happened a lot, too, with Isabella's scenes that take place in the past. I just kind of channel their their energy, and I just feel like those stories just kind of flow without me thinking too hard. Or overthinking yeah. it. Yeah, I guess that overthinking it is restrictive. Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah. I think it's also because you're kind of mulling things over a lot. When I'm not thinking, I'm thinking about things. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> when I mm -hmm. take a break and I go walking with the dog. Somebody asked me once if I listen to music when I write. I cannot write listening to music because I, I hear the words and I want to sing and it's just so distracting. But right. 
at yeah. night I walk the dogs, and sometimes I get halfway around the block, and I just want to drag them back home because all of a sudden this idea has popped in my head, and I, I just have to go <laughs> back and, and capture it. So I think you can't just sit there and wait for that, that line to write itself because you can get stuck, and it can take, like, maybe two hours. But if you go right. off and go to the gym or do something else, then it just comes. Yeah. So what are you working on currently? Do you have another book in the process? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> As with uh, writing my first book, Dreaming Sophia, about midway through the writing of Waking Isabella, this idea came to me for another book. And it seemed to me a natural progression to create this third book book in what I'd like to think of as a quasi type of trilogy. The books mm-hmm. are meant to stand alone, but they have similar themes, how American women find their way to Italy. And yeah. all three novels, I mix in historical topics with a storyline set in the present day that dips into the past, woven together with a bit of fantasy, as well as a large helping of art history, because mm-hmm. I'm all about art history. And I love the past. So in all three novels also, which is very interesting as I've been doing my research, even for the third book, the Medici family plays a significant role. The next book is going to focus on the painter Artemisia Gentileschi, and she was a talented female artist from the Baroque era, and the book I'm now tentatively calling Avenging Artemisia because there's an art to revenge. Oh, okay. Nice. And are you just now in the planning stages or have you started writing? Yeah, right now I'm doing my research. I have a 20 or 30 page outline that I'm working on and I'm flushing out what the storyline is going to be. Okay, good. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of excited. I know I just came out with Waking Isabella and I'm I want to give her due respect and get her out there to readers, but now I, I'm ready to, I miss writing. I really yeah. miss it, so I want to get back to uh, creating a new heroine and a new protagonist, male protagonist, and so I'm kind of excited about getting started, but, you know, yeah. once you get, I'm also a little bit trepidatious because once you start, or once I start, I have to say goodbye to my family for a little <laughs> bit, and my husband's like, wait, don't, <laughs> don't start right away. No, but I, yeah. I, I, I plan to start, so that's going to be my project for this year. I will be oh. working through that, and we'll see how it develops. Yeah, sounds great. Tell our listeners about your award-winning Italian language blog, and I wanted to find out a little bit more about that and how your blog promotes uh, learning the language. Oh, I love my blog. I write a dual-language <laughs> blog in Italian and English called Studentessa Mata. It's a mouthful but it means crazy language student, and I started it about seven years ago. And it was a reason for me to use the language in a meaningful way every day. I had reached that language learning block, all language learners reach, and I Mm -hmm. wasn't moving ahead and getting better. And I just needed a way to keep using and writing the language to improve my language abilities. And I write about language learning tips as well as a lot about Italian culture, music, art, uh, festivals like the Joust, because I believe it, to learn a language well, you need to know about its culture. And mm-hmm. to know more about the culture, you need to know the language, really. The two go hand in hand. So that's why I combine. It's not just a strict language blog. But um, I do write in Italian and English so that very beginning students can follow along. And I get a lot of uh, feedback saying that's very helpful for people to practice. They like to read the Italian first, and then they go and see, you know, how accurate or how their understanding was because the English version is right there. And uh, I've been doing this for about seven years, and I then branched out to create YouTube videos in Italian as well as podcasts. And those are fun, too, because I can draw in a lot of my artistic abilities. And I like creating the YouTube videos and putting in pictures and Mm -hmm. illustrating 
also my blog that way with photos and things that it's just very creative to me. It's a very creative process. And the blog recently, or about five years ago, I should say, it's become popular with students as well as language schools. And for the past five years, I've been collaborating with schools to help co-lead these small group language immersion programs in Italy. I've conducted programs in Rome, in Lucca, Florence, Venice, Lecce, down in Puglia, and more recently in Orezzo, and I do two a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, this year my programs are taking place in 2018 in Montepulciano, which is in Tuscany, again, a little bit around Arezzo, and then I return to Arezzo in September of this year. So I'll be um, spending time, more time in Arezzo. Well, doesn't sound like a bad place to go back to, huh? <laughs> no. I've become very, um, as I said, when I stepped off the train, I really felt I'd come home, so I like going yeah. back to Arezzo. Yeah. And I visit my friends there, and so that's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So how do people sign up for one of your programs, and what do they entail, and who can participate? Well, really anyone can sign up and participate as long as you have a desire to learn the Italian language. It doesn't matter really what level you are at as long as you have a good attitude and want to dive in and have some fun in Italy. The programs are designed to accommodate up to, well, 10 to 12 people. We are like a small family. We move together. We study at the school in the mornings. Each student is placed in a class that is appropriate to their level so they can Mm -hmm. maximize their learning Then in the afternoon, just our group reunites and we participate in activities that I've created or developed with my partner so that we can continue using the language in a meaningful way. We do wine tastings, we visit local craftspeople, we partake in festivals like uh, the Jostra Jostra Mm -hmm. and the Sagras. The Sagra is where you go and you taste local foods, uh, products Mm. of the area. And last year in Arezzo, we went to a small town and we had the Porchetta Festival, and there's music and dancing, and, and we get to taste all the products the town produces. And we have cooking lessons, uh, so you get an idea. And we get to see a side of Italy that uh, few tourists really see. Uh, we get to meet friends, and people have a, a really good opportunity to take their language a little bit further and have meaningful conversations. And you can sign up right on the blog. My student Mata blog is com. Okay. And there's a subscription form there. You can send an inquiry, and, or you can just write to me directly, and I can help if you have questions. Okay. So you can find links to all of your different programs on your website. Yeah, yeah actually, yes. So I have two websites. So the language blog is Studentessa Mata, but you can also find me, probably easier for people to remember, is melissamuldoon.com. And I have all the links there to all my latest author news as well as my programs in Italy, my blogs, and my YouTube channel. So you can find everything there. Okay, wonderful. So what has been one of your most rewarding experiences as an author? That's a very easy question. When I was writing my first book, Dreaming Sophia, I had the extreme pleasure of meeting Miss Sophia Loren in person. Uh, She is the Italian, famous Italian movie actress, and I was doing research for my book. When I learned she was giving a one-woman show in Las Vegas, I knew I had to find a way to meet her. So I moved (laughs) heaven and earth and got some friends to go with me to Las Vegas. Had I not been involved in writing this book, I would never, ever have had the courage to do so or make this happen. But after I discovered there was a private reception and I got a special, uh, an after-show invitation to meet her, it was a private reception. 
Mm-hmm. And I had during this time, I had the opportunity to speak with her in Italian, kiss her on both cheeks, and tell her about my novel. And we also had a photo taken together. And for me, that was a dream come true. There were two things she said that resonated with me that evening. The first, believe in your dreams, dreams become reality. And you can just imagine, because that was the theme of my first book, and she didn't know right. that. And I just to hear her say that, it was such a thrill. <laughs> and the second thing she said was to be brave and just do it. And I would say this is awesome. My advice to anyone who wants to do anything meaningful in their life or they want to write a book, for example, for aspiring authors, you can second-guess yourself all you want, but it just comes down to hard work, lots and lots and lots of draft variations as well, if you're a writer. <laughs> And believing in yourself and just doing it. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience and also some great advice. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melissa. It has been a lot of fun, and it was great to catch up with you again. Thank you so much, Sherry. I really enjoyed speaking with you. To our listeners, thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Melissa Muldoon. For more information on Melissa's books, Dreaming Sophia and Waking Isabella, please visit her website at melissamuldoon.com. You can also find information there about her immersion trips to Italy and her Studentessa Mata blog, where she promotes the Italian language and culture. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. 